There's no denying the economic opportunity in a transition to clean energy. And even while federal energy policy remains in flux, local advocates and officials have a real opportunity to parlay the promise of a cleaner energy system into a local economic boon. Getting there is a matter of recognizing the potential for clean energy growth, the compelling benefits of local ownership, and the right local policies to make it all happen. Our own John Farrell, who heads the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and also hosts this podcast, recently delivered a keynote address for ARO, or the Alternative Energy Resources Organization, in Butte, Montana. In this special episode of Local Energy Rules, we bring you a recording of his presentation. You can find John's slides to follow along at ILSR.org. Otherwise, you can just listen in. Fair warning, the audio quality is a little off, but we hope you enjoy the presentation anyway. This is Local Energy Rules, a podcast sharing powerful stories about local renewable energy. And now, here's John. You know, it's my deep um, happiness to be able to present John Farrell to you tonight to talk about his perspective on the development of energy and community solar. Thank you very much. Yellowstone, I brought my family with. They're not here tonight because my six and eight year old don't find this stuff very interesting uh, yet, um, especially when it's a slideshow. But uh, I have great hopes for them uh, in the future. I, I, I was sharing with a group last night that I was meeting with, with some aero folks and some other folks working on energy. Um, I really only had one experience being in Montana before. It was when I was a kid. We had a family vacation to Yellowstone and we were on our way back home. Uh, and, you know, it's a long drive back to Minnesota where I'm from. Uh, and my only real memory is not actually of any of the terrain uh, or stopping any particular place. It's just listening to the Jurassic Park soundtrack on repeat, because <laughs> that's all my brother ever wanted to listen to. And for some reason, he was in control of the CD player. So this trip has been much better in terms of creating good <laughs> memories about Montana. I very much enjoyed my time here, and so thankful that you have had me give this talk. Um, I like to start with a little warm-up, a little quiz. I'm sorry if nobody told you there was going to be a quiz. The good news is there are drinks back there. If you get things wrong. Um, uh, but we're going to just get, ask you a few questions, give you a sense of some of the excitement that Jim talked about, about renewable energy, uh, and why this is such an exciting time to be working in this. So we're going to start with a question about uh, wind power. Um, and we're gonna, the, the question is structured around how much wind power is available in Montana, but in particular as a multiplier of how much uh, uh, electricity is consumed in the state on an annual basis. So you've got five options here. So for example, A would mean that there's enough wind in Montana to serve 25% of the state's electricity needs. And answer E would see that there's 27,000%, enough wind for 27,000%. So how many, how many folks out here do I have for, for letter A? All right, how about B? How about C? Okay, a few more takers there, letter D. And anybody for E? There are not enough optimists yet in this group. It's 27,000%. You guys have an amazing wind resource. And it's not just Montana, in fact. Um, it's about 30 states have enough to serve 100% or more of their annual retail electricity sales. Um, and as you can see from this quote from the CEO from Excel Energy, it's one of the 10 largest utility companies. 
uh, in the country. It's actually headquartered in Minnesota. It's also the cheapest way to build, uh, uh, to generate electricity at utility scale anywhere in the country. Um, so it's a terrific time if you're a utility that's interested in delivering low-cost power in any of these states uh, to get it um, from a, a resource that has no fuel cost. So let's do a second question. If you got the first one wrong, that's okay. Like I said, go get a refill on your drink, or you can make it up to Arrow by bidding on cake later. Um, let's talk about solar. So it's the same question. It's a percentage of the amount of electricity that's used in the state of Montana every year. But this is looking at just at rooftops, so uh, home rooftops, business rooftops. Um, how much solar energy could we get? Uh, how much of the state's electricity sales could be met with rooftop solar alone? So who, how many do I have for letter A? It does not include irrigation. It's, uh, this has to be on an existing structure. So letter A. Letter B. Good, we're getting more optimistic. I like this. Letter C. 28%. Letter D and letter E. Woo. All right, I love the optimism there. You guys need to build more homes and businesses. <laughs> um, but I think. I, Does that I, count grain bins? Because we put a lot of them. I don't know about grain bins. I, I'll refer you back. There is a link on our website to the study where this comes from, and if you want to dig into the details. Montana is not alone, though. Um, almost every state in the country could get 25% of its electricity or more uh, from solar on rooftops. And that doesn't include, in fact, the way that you, oh, many utilities are already building solar, which is in large ground-mounted arrays. So we can get an, an enormous amount of our electricity from solar um, and wind, which are, of course, our two key renewable resources. And as Jim mentioned, they're getting a lot cheaper. The other thing I want to say about solar that I think is so important to understand is that it's really competitive no matter how you build it. So there's a lot of information in this chart, and I'm sorry, I, we like to make really detailed and uh, informative charts here. The, the important part is that we're talking about solar at different scales. So on the left-hand side, you have solar on a rooftop, like Jim was talking about in his home. On the right-hand side, you have solar that's built to compete with a fossil fuel power plant. And the blue bars represent the, dif the difference, the savings you get from building solar at any of those scales. And so the idea here is that you can see that there are savings at the small scale, uh, at the retail level on a, on a home. There are savings when you build it and put it on a business in the middle, and there are savings when you build it very large. Um, and the reason that this is important is a lot of times we get into debates about, well, what's the cheapest resource? Is it wind? Is it solar? And, and the question is, well, it depends. Where is it that you're building that resource and where is it delivering that energy? So I'm not going to get too much into that detail of the stuff that we energy wonks like to argue about. But suffice to say, solar is really a key element uh, of the energy revolution that's taking place. Um, with that, I want to give a little background about you know, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. So we're, we're almost the same age as Arrow. We were founded in 1974 on Washington, D.C. Uh, one of our first reports was actually about one of the first factories that built solar cells for what they call terrestrial applications, which is to say, not for the space program. Um, so we've been focused on this for a long time. And, and the, the mission of our work and of my work on energy democracy is really to see this trans transformation take place, to move from a system that we call energy monopoly where you have a one-way flow of energy from uh, large and often very dirty power plants to customers to a two-way flow. And so you see the, the colors changing here. In the bottom right, you have uh, energy from solar and from wind, and it's being transacted between different folks. It's going into electric vehicles or energy storage. And the role of that big power plant and that big utility has shrunk significantly. And that really fits in with the way the technology is changing. So there's a lot of exciting things happening with renewable energy, and, uh, and, and that's why we focus on this transition to what we call energy democracy. Um, I wanted to share a little story about um, a group that has 
I think represents the aspirations of a lot of folks uh, uh, across the country to take advantage of this technological change. They're based in Keene, New Hampshire, a relatively small town uh, in the northern part. Oh, oh, hello. All right. Hello, Keene. Um, there's, a, there's a food co-op there um, that was interested in renewable energy. There were a number of folks in the community interested in uh, seeing a solar array uh, uh, built in the community, uh, a community-based solar array. And, and what they said was, well, how can we make this happen? And so they got together about 10 or 15 investors that put up uh, several thousand dollars. Uh, they worked with the co-op to get the co-op to put in some money as sort of a pre-purchase of electricity. Uh, they put the solar on, on the co-op, uh, and then they signed a long-term contract to sell power to that uh, food co-op. Uh, and they used a local installation firm. All of the owners of that array live in the community uh, and serving that local co-op, which now gets electricity at a terrific discount for, for many, many years will not face uh, the, the threat of increased electricity prices from from utility. Um, and I think, that, frankly, this represents what communities across the country want to do. They want to see this combination of local things happening, local ownership of their energy, um, using local talent, uh, helping build local jobs. Um, but the, the truth is that, unfortunately, that there's some challenges with doing it um, in this model. So again, information-rich chart warning. Um, there are sort of three things that are important here. One is that a lot of the institutions that we want to use to do this kind of community-based energy system are nonprofits, or they're churches, or um, they're community organizations like Arrow, or the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, or they're cities and public buildings. And those guys are in the left-hand column here, and they can't take tax credits or depreciation, which is the form that we offer incentives for renewable energy in this country. And so it's actually more difficult for community-based institutions than any other to make this kind of thing happen. Uh, on the other hand, on the far right-hand side, you have like if a Walmart puts solar on the roof, they are a big corporation, they pay a lot of taxes, and they can take tax incentives. And so solar for them is actually a lot cheaper than it is for these community-based institutions. And in the middle, you have uh, a number of different ways that communities have tried to make it work, working with private uh, parties who could take the tax credits. But there are always some transaction costs. That private party wants a nice return on investment for giving some of their capital and for getting the tax credits. And so it never quite works out as well as we would like. So one of the problems we have is actually at the federal level with the way that we structure incentives. And I'll get into a little bit later how we get around some of those problems. A second issue we have is with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And I say this sort of with an asterisk, which is to say that I don't have a problem with the Securities and Exchange Commission. The idea is to protect investors from frauds like Bernie Madoff and pyramid schemes and all and Ponzi schemes and all that kind of thing. But if you have a relatively small solar project, like you might put on the roof of a hardware store, and you were organizing it in a community ownership structure like they used in Keene, New Hampshire, you'd spend about 60% of the upfront cost to just build, that you did to build that array, maybe like $50,000 every year in just complying with Securities and Exchange Commission rules uh, to ensure that your investors are well informed, et cetera, et cetera. So it becomes again a very onerous uh, um, way of doing things that, uh, that doesn't take into account the kinds of different structure, ownership structures that we want to have uh, with renewable energy. And the third thing is that there are sort of limits to sharing energy. So one of the, the final things that's interesting for a lot of people about community energy is, well, how can we share it? You know, how can we build that solar array on that food co-op, but how can all of us like own one of those panels and share some of that electricity? And unfortunately, the rules in most states make it very difficult to do. Um, and, and the problem is, in particular, that when you can share, so like Minnesota has a law supporting community-based solar, when you can share, you get around some of the other limitations we mentioned before around tax credits and around the securities rules. 
Um, and so that's one of the really important policies that we need to see uh, that can make things happen. So there are three fairly significant barriers, but ones that we are working to overcome, but I think are important to give some context for in the nature of all this excitement uh, of what's going on that uh, unfortunately there are still limitations. Um, the one thing I did want to mention that I thought was pretty cool, because this is not true in most states where I go to give talks, is that folks in Montana have already talked about this notion of community ownership. In fact, you have a law requiring utilities to buy uh, energy, renewable energy, from community-owned projects. It sounds like just like in Minnesota where we have a law like that, it's sort of hard to figure out how to enforce a law like that and to make sure that there is, in fact, verifiable community ownership. Um, but it was exciting to me to see that folks here already care about that. You already have a piece of legislation that supports this notion. Now the scale at which this is, is you know, multiple megawatts, which is different than that kind of rooftop of a hardware store or a food co-op. Uh, but I think it's a very exciting thing to uh, be able to sink your teeth into and say, hey, we're already looking at this from the right perspective. So in this context of all of the renewable energy potential that we showed in those, those first slides uh, in terms of our quiz and in, in terms of the challenges that we face now, the thing I really want to highlight in this next section here is about how we need to get ready for the changes that are coming because the pace of change is accelerating really, really fast. And it's really, really exciting. So this chart is what I like to call the pole and streamers. So all of those streamers that go off to the right there are forecasts by the World Energy Organization or the Federal Energy Information Administration. So uh, the big agencies serving both international and national government of the growth of solar power. And these go back about a decade. And you can see that each one is pretty much like, yeah, we're gonna continue at a pretty steady pace. The black line, the pole, is the actual growth of solar energy. So they're really, really bad at predicting how cost-effective uh, renewable energy is. And I think this chart is important for two reasons. One is to take with a grain of salt official predictions about how fast this stuff can grow. Because uh, when it, the, the thing that is exciting about solar panels in particular uh, is not only the fact that you can own them and stick them just about anywhere, but the fact that you can mass produce them. It's like the Model T was for automobiles, that mass production is what really drove down the cost. And you'll see that with some other technologies that are really feeding into this. So solar is growing super fast. In, in the United States last year, we had a solar installation every 60 seconds. I'm not quite exactly sure how long I've been up here, but we've seen some solar installed since I got up here and started talking, which is very exciting. Um, and it's growing so quickly that there are some estimates now that solar uh, PV could provide fully half of global electricity by 2050. So in 30 years, half of all the energy that we use could be coming from solar. Um, so it's very, very exciting how quickly it's moving. Um, we're also seeing that movement with wind energy. Wind power is two-thirds cheaper than it was just seven years ago. Um, and they're forecasted by 2030, which I keep reminding myself is actually 13 years away now. It used to seem like it was really far away. They're predicting that uh, electricity from wind energy would be not just cheaper than that of any other fossil fuel, it will be cheaper than the fuel alone for a natural gas power plant. So that ignores like your labor costs and your maintenance and everything else. So this stuff is going to get, not only is it cost effective now, it's going to get so cheap there will be no point in building anything else uh, uh, to serve our, our energy needs. Um, and the third technology that's important to talk, to talk about is batteries. And, and this chart makes me smile because it is sort of another version of that poll and streamers chart that I mentioned about earlier in terms of official projections. So this chart came out in 2013. It was three fairly well-respected agencies predicting the way that battery costs were going to go down over the next few years. And that's what the actual cost was in 2016 for batteries, 50% lower than the most ambitious forecast. And it makes sense when you think about it. Batteries are in smartphones, they're in laptops, we're now we're putting them in cars. 
Uh, Tesla is building a gigafactory or has completed their gigafactory that doubled the world production of lithium-ion batteries. Once we can mass produce this stuff, it gets cheaper really fast. And batteries in particular are going to be important for what I'm going to talk about a little bit later, about the implications for ownership and the choices that we have in our energy system. So we have this enormous, enormous opportunity in terms of where and how much renewables can serve our needs. And we have this change that is accelerating incredibly fast in the electricity system. The nice thing I want to talk about here is how that change is really jumping the boundaries of our different economic sectors. So up until now, up until the last couple of years, we've mostly been talking about the electricity sector, which is about one third of our total energy use, and the rest is for building, heating, and for transportation. But what's been happening in the last few years is that we're jumping boundaries. So the Nissan Leaf, which is one of the first kind of commercially available electric cars, the first one that came out had a, uh, like an 85 mile range or something like that. Um, they just came out with a new model for 2018. It has double the range, but it's the same exact price. So again, when we talk about the technological change in batteries or in solar, the technologies that are going to fuel transportation are also getting really cheap really quickly. The thing I thought of, I, you know, we talked at, at the group I met with last night, I, we mentioned electric vehicles, and folks like, well, yeah, but in Montana, the distances are really long. I think one thing that is important to keep in mind is a lot of households are like mine, we have two cars. So one of car, our cars is our long-range car, because my wife's family lives 250 miles away, and we like to go there and visit there fairly often and whatnot. And the other car is the one that we use for commuting around town to our jobs and whatnot, um, and is saving a bunch of money. In fact, an electric vehicle is forecast, if you own it for 10 years, can save you about $10,000 over the cost of a, a, a comparable gasoline car, even including the cost of a replacement battery. Um, and that's in part because there are 100 times fewer moving parts in the drivetrain than an electric vehicle. Out of the top 10 repairs done on most cars uh, in the United States, zero of them apply to electric cars. Um, and so owning an electric vehicle is not just about changing the fuel source, it's about completely changing the idea of our transportation, that we're gonna be driving things that hardly ever require repairs. I drive past gas stations all the time and, and smile because I have to sort of cheat when I wanna clean my windshield. Because I don't really go to buy gas anymore. I just sort of pull up and I'm like, hope they don't mind, but it's really dirty. Um, that's the kind of thing that's going to motivate people to change here, is that they're going to be able to take advantage of something that is just cost effective, frankly. It's not going to be uh, about uh, um, making, you know, like with a Prius, somewhat of an environmental statement. It's going to be making uh, an economic statement, or even a statement, you know, if you've seen, you should Google it, uh, like a te the Tesla zero to 60 videos, and just watch the faces of the people in those videos when they get in a car that it can accelerate that fast. It's really uh, amazing. Um, the other thing I want to say about jumping boundaries is that uh, this also applies to building heating, which is kind of the last big sector. So Montana's a cold state, Minnesota's a cold state. I never thought I'd be heating my house with anything other than natural gas. I thought maybe I could buy a really, really efficient furnace and I could put in a lot of insulation, I could lower my bill really far. But we've been having some interesting conversations, uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about this, uh, within the climate-related work in the city of Minneapolis about the fact that we probably can't reach our climate goals if we keep using gas to heat buildings. And the truth is that there are actually already air source heat pumps, which are sort of drop-in replacements for natural gas furnaces, for the most part. not going to get too much into weeds there. But I'm a big optimist about the fact that if we can figure out how to mass produce these things, like we can with batteries and solar panels and whatnot, and we have lots of homes to start with that are not on natural gas, but like you take propane, for example, or other fuels right now, uh, heat pumps are where the future of that is at. 
and we're going to see that electricity opportunity jump yet another boundary. And the thing that's super exciting to me about that is that you can use then that renewable electricity that we can generate anywhere for just about every uh, item that we use energy for, whether it's heating our buildings or fueling our vehicles uh, or providing electricity for our gadgets and our appliances. And ultimately, what we end up talking about then is, and I love this image, is that we're talking about cutting the cord. So in the same way that people switched from having landline phones to having just cell phones, that we're talking about people having really the ultimate level of control over their energy use in a way they never had before. I mean, 20 years ago, there was really only one way to get electricity, and that was to take it from the utility company. And now we're talking about different levels of being able to uh, uh, to, to cut the cord. And it's not complete, we're not talking most people about going off-grid, although we're talking about that more now than I've ever heard of in, in the time that I've been working on this. Um, but it is the implication and that potential that sets us up for changing the way that the system works. So Hawaii is a great example of this. Hawaii is an island. They import, they have for many, many years imported enormous amounts of oil to power their electricity system, not just their transportation system. Something like 80 to 90% of their electricity was generated with oil as recently as a decade ago. It's also, for example, what's going on in Puerto Rico is that almost all of their power plants were oil fired. Um, and so what it meant was that solar was super economical for people in Hawaii. So now about 15 to 20% of homes in Hawaii have solar arrays already. Um, but the implications of the way that the technology is growing and accelerating is that they're going to be able to go from using about half of that energy on site, because the issue is, of course, solar is best at around noontime, and a lot of people go to work and are at home and using energy at noon. But with smart thermostats and timers and electric vehicles or batteries, people can raise that up to as much as 90% of the energy that they produce they can use in their own home. And the implication for that is that they're going to buy even less from the utility company. And so the exciting thing about this for me is not that we say to the utility, we don't need you anymore, but we can say to the utility, what's the value you provide to us now? And we can flip that question around from what it has been for 100 years. The last thing I want to say about this is in terms of battery technology in particular, this is um, about commercial customers. So uh, if you're a, you know, your, your utility bill in your home has just usually an energy charge on it, which is you pay a certain amount, uh, you know, 10 cents per kilowatt hour electricity you use. For a commercial customer, they have two pieces of the bill. One is based on the most that they use in a, one particular hour of, one, uh, of a month, and then the other one is based on the amount of actual energy they use. And the implication for batteries here that's really exciting is that batteries allow you to affect that one particular hour. And all of the places in dark red are places where there are hundreds of thousands of business customers who can already affordably, it would, like, it would make economic sense for them to buy a battery right now from Tesla or whoever else will sell it to them in order to sh cut down that portion of their electric bill. Um, and it's going to spread really fast. There are even some customers in Montana and the Dakotas, places where there's typically been very cheap electricity, because this is about the structure that utilities use for their rates. So I don't want to get too much into the weeds there, but because uh, this gets more into things that energy wants are really excited about than average people. But suffice to say that the technology is really changing in really remarkable ways, what we're going to be able to do. Good point. The darker parts are where it's really exciting right Thank now. You. <laughs> Thank you. So who's going to lead in this transition? When we talk about um, all of that renewable energy potential that we did in the first couple of questions, or when we talk about how it's accelerating in terms of the change that's happening, the question is who's going to lead in that transition? Is it going to be the utility company? And this, for this, I, I think of a story, this happened to me about three years ago. I was invited to speak in Tucson. 
um, they were really excited. Tucson is basically ground zero for the best solar resource in the entire country. And yet their utility company had just put together a resource plan that essentially said, we're gonna build lots and lots of natural gas and maybe a little bit of solar. And it, it didn't make economic sense, it didn't make environmental sense, and there were a whole bunch of the problems with it. Anyway, I was invited down there to talk, and at one of the talks, they didn't tell me, but they had a utility guy in the audience, and they gave him a chance to stand up afterwards and say, well, what did you think of that? And the good news is, he didn't say, he didn't challenge any of my facts, which was exciting. Uh, but the other thing he did is he kind of went off on an explanation of why it was that they weren't going to do what the community wanted. And this quote kind of encompassed what it was, which is to say that they were very culturally conservative, not politically conservative, but they simply, this is the way they've done the business for 100 years, and that's the way that they were going to do the business going forward. And so they really weren't set up to do anything any different, to take advantage of all these things that are now changing so quickly. I mean, when you talk about the time frame for utilities, you know, monopoly utility companies that, you know, have state regulation, is like is true in Montana and Minnesota and 30 other states, um, put together a 15-year resource plan, and then they update it usually every three or four years or something like that. They're not thinking about how fast technology is changing that is right under their feet. I mean, if you're planning to build a power plant 10 years from now in one of those resource plans, there's no possible way it's going to be economical compared to the renewable energy alternatives to it. Um, and so that, that, that quote in particular really stuck out to me about thinking about how utilities are, even if we wanted them to be the agents of change, I don't think they're prepared to do it. And it really gets us this issue of disruption. So I think about this a lot when I think about phones. So I mentioned before the issue of like landlines and cord cutting and whatnot. And it's a great analogy for how this whole thing is playing out. Because I think about my kids who are six and eight. And it's true that Grammy has one of these at home in the basement somewhere which they have been able to see and it actually still has a battle to them. But ignoring that for the second, when I, when you, if you ask my kids or any other kid their age what a phone is, a phone is a thing that has you know, videos and video chats and I can play games on and my dad doesn't let me use it often enough. So they have no idea the level of disruption that we've seen in that technology you know, over the past you know, 10 to 20 years. So I just want to ask a question about that actually to give people a sense for how, how much this played out. So go ahead and raise your hand if you have a smartphone. Now keep your hand in the air if that smartphone was manufactured by your landline phone company. Have actually had people keep their hand in the air before, which is always amazing. Um, I'm not sure that they were honest. But I think this, this highlights again what that utility fellow in Tucson told me, which is that they're just not prepared to innovate. The innovation in our energy system is coming from the outside, not from the inside. And that has in, enormous and very serious implications for the way that we need to structure the rules and for ownership for the system. Um, and as Abraham Lincoln once said, monopolies don't innovate. Actually, I don't know that he said that. <laughs> but, I, but I think it's true nevertheless. Um, I want to give a, couple exa a few examples of that. So uh, uh, of the way that the incumbents in, in this system right now tend to be working against the flow of change. In Minnesota, for example, the utility company did its resource plan. They said they wanted to build a natural gas plant to replace a coal plant that was going to be closing because it would reach the end of its useful life. And the utility commission didn't say no. It just said, we want to think about it for a little bit longer. So come back to us next year and let us evaluate whether or not it's cost effective. And instead, the utility rounded up its 50 lobbyists, went to the legislature and said, we're going to get a bill pushed through that allows us to build that power plant. And they did. So it's going to end up being a billion dollar subsidy to save 150 jobs 
in this community, and it's gonna cost way more than anything else we could possibly build to serve that same need in Minnesota. Uh, I wrote the commentary piece on the left side because I felt very strongly about that. Um, and we'll see what happens in the long run. But it's just one illustration of the way that, and, and I think this is the most important piece, utility company as a monopoly is not just the structure of the economic system, that they are the only sole provider of electricity. It gives them enormous political power that they use all of the time to get, the way, to get their way. Uh, and this happens in other places. You have in Nevada, the incumbent utility companies convincing the commission to get rid of net metering to lower the compensation for folks who had solar on the rooftops. Uh, a process that took two years, an enormous amount of grassroots organizing, and a referendum to reverse. And in Florida, you have uh, the incumbent investor-owned utility companies doing what they called, one of their analysts called political jujitsu, where uh, as advocates for solar were putting together an amendment uh, to, uh, to put on the ballot to make it easier to do solar installations, the utility companies introduced their own amendment, which had very similar sounding language, but did the exact opposite, which made it harder for people to go solar. Uh, and it was only through some excellent reporting and uncovering uh, of the nature of the deception uh, that that amendment was able to be defeated. Now I do want to take a minute to tell a story of Kit Carson Electric Cooperative in, in Taos, New Mexico, as a way to highlight that it's not all utilities that are the problem. Um, Kit Carson is a really remarkable uh, co-op. Their general manager has been there now for about 20 years, and he uh, got started in that position by essentially going around and saying, we need to start reconnecting with our members. Because in national surveys, only about 25% of people who get their electricity from electric co-op actually understand that they own the co-op and that they get to elect the people who run the co-op. Um, and so it's, it's been a very difficult, for, for institutions that started 100 years ago, essentially because nobody was willing to build electricity out to serve them, uh, they've really lost touch in many cases with the folks that own them. But anyway, you know, he started with these listening sessions, and what people said was what people all, all across the country are saying, which is we have these renewable energy resources, they've got great solar resources there in New Mexico, and we want to use them. And so they started to build more solar and to build more local renewable energy, and they reached, all of a sudden they realized that their contract that they had with their supplier uh, said that only 5% of their energy could come from local resources, and they had to always buy the remaining 95% from Tri-State, which was their supplier, um, the Generation and Transmission Co-op. And they went to Tri-State and said, okay, but you know, like all of our members, uh, our owners of this co-op, all of the co-ops that sell power in that region are members of Tri-State. And so they said, well, let's just go have a conversation. We're part owners. Maybe they'll agree to let us do something different. And they went back and forth and back and forth and they couldn't get anywhere. And finally what they ended up having to say was, we need to get out of this relationship. It's not working for us anymore. We need to have the flexibility to build local generation, to get cheaper electricity, et cetera. And they were able to successfully negotiate their way out. And so they went from being 5% uh, of their electricity coming from local renewable resources to five years from now, 100% of the electricity they sell during the daytime will come from solar. And in the next five to 10 years after that, they're intending to go to 100% renewable energy. And meanwhile, a lot of the other co-ops that are still members of Tri-State are gonna be stuck on primarily fossil fuel contracts for a long time, which I'll talk about here in just a second. So there are, there are leaders out there in the, in the utility world, in co-ops, uh, there's Green Mountain Power out in Vermont, but they are very small, unfortunately, and isolated examples of change. Now, I, I, just to give you a sense for how this has implications for Montana, so your share of uh, utilities, you have about two-thirds of 
customers in Montana are served by investor-owned utilities, and Northwestern Energy, I understand, is the biggest of those. About 30% served by cooperatives like Kit Carson and New York One City, Troy, which is served by a city-owned utility. Um, and municipal utilities are similar to co-ops in the sense that they are publicly owned institutions. They have democratic process and elections. Um, and so there's, there's some opportunities there to take advantage of that. And you have seen that with co-ops in particular, they're represented by the little red pushpins on here, um, that they have been more interested in trying things like community solar than other utility companies. Um, if you want to know more about the details of this, I say this with an asterisk because not all community solar is created equally, and some of those programs are designed just to keep people from putting solar on their own rooftop. But I'm excited to see that there is interest in responding to their members around solar um, as they have been. And you also have, you have four you know, of the community solar projects on that previous map here uh, in Western Montana as well um, by a couple of different co-ops here. Uh, you can actually see this. We have what's called our community power map on our website that has a list of uh, community solar projects across the country. Uh, so you can see uh, who it is that's hosting them and, and a little bit more about them. Um, but to get back to that issue of Kit Carson, for example, and, and the issue for a lot of other co-ops, they're in these long-term contracts for an extremely long time. So for example, uh, Kit Carson's contract was gonna be through the year 2050. Um, you have uh, co-ops that are members of Basin Electric, which is true uh, in Eastern Montana and also in some in the Dakotas, that have contracts that go out through 2070. And so the ability for them to change their resources to get rid of inefficient and expensive fossil fuel power and replace it with wind power, which is the cheapest resource, or solar power are very limited. Uh, unless they're able to change that relationship they, they have with their supplier. Oh. The last thing I think that's worth saying about co-ops, uh, as I mentioned before, so Kit Carson is this remarkable uh, uh, um, uh, example, and it's in part because I think the focus of their general manager in going out and really reconnecting with members. Um, the Northern Plains Resource Council, based here in Montana, did a really wonderful coverage on co-ops couple of years ago focused specifically on the issue of governance because one of the co-op principles is that they are democratic institutions. One of the things that we've seen unfortunately is that participation in that democratic process has been very limited. So I'm not going to go too much into co-ops. We wrote an entire report if you want to know about how rural co-ops are doing and the responsiveness that they have to members around renewable energy. But this was a really key piece in our research in understanding what is it the kinds of things that we need to see from co-ops in order to respect that democratic process in order for communities to be able to actually have some say in what their utility does. And it covers things from just even having like bylaws or board, meet, board minutes online to allowing members to come to board meetings. Um, it's remarkable how many co-ops don't even do those kinds of things. So we've covered a huge range of the potential for renewables and the way that it's accelerating. We've talked a little bit about some of the barriers, but also about the fact that we have utilities uh, that may not be pos well positioned to lead, whether because of their cultural conservatism or the rules of the game that we have for them. One last thing that I want to share in terms of kind of an anecdote or a metaphor for describing the situation we're in is that so much of our focus in renewable energy up until now has been around policy, in particular at the state level. And that's appropriate because that's where we can set policy. But the problem is, and I gave from the examples that I gave before, both in Florida and in Nevada and in Minnesota, is that when we're playing policy in those places, it's like playing a football game, but always um, as a visitor on the home turf of the utility company, who is always better, better resourced in order to play that. So it's really expensive to get into the game, and every time you score, you have to kick the ball back to the other team. 
And so the, the, the nature of the ways that we need to think about leading and changing is how do we change the game entirely? How do we change the nature of the game that we're playing so that we're not always kicking the ball back at the end of the day? So all three of these items that I want to talk about here, three examples that I want to give, come to what we call, what we're developing called our Community Power Toolkit. And the idea behind this was that we would get calls from organizations or I'd be invited to speak at organizations and they would ask me like, well, what is it that we can do? And I would always think, I, I would always come up with a few good stories in the moment and I would send a few more over email and then I'd realize a few weeks later that I'd forgotten six or seven other ideas. And this played out over and over again. I thought, I need to stick this all somewhere where I can remember it. And I thought, even better, I'll stick it somewhere where other people can just go find it and I don't have to remember it every time. So that's the nature of this resource that's on our website. Um, and, and we focus on three different ways. One is to focus on my neighborhood, which is to say, what can I do with folks already without changing any kind of policy? The second one is look, focus on utilities. I'm reading from right to left, I know it's not the way we normally do this. Uh, is focusing on utilities. So what can I do with my utility company if they're amenable? You know, if maybe they're an electric co-op, uh, or maybe I've got a municipal utility, or maybe it's an investor in utility that happens to be rather enlightened. And the third one is focused on cities, because cities are where we've seen probably the most potential for change, and I'll give a little example of that uh, as we go through this. So I'm going to start with the neighborhood uh, and talk a little bit about this notion of a, a solar group purchase. So I think one of the most successful ways that we've seen this kind of energy transformation take place is people uh, pooling their resources together to buy solar for themselves individually, but to go out and bid collectively uh, to do that. So I'm actually on the board of a group called Solar United Neighbors, uh, formerly the Community Power Network. And what they do is they set up these co-ops, and they're co-ops, not a, like a, an electric co-op where they all own generation together, but it's a co-op of people who go out together just to buy collectively their solar panels at a discount. Uh, but the second piece, and probably the more important piece, is that those co-ops then are organized to help those people get involved in the political process and understand you are able to go solar, for example, because of these rules that are either under threat because of things that are happening in policy uh, at the legislature, or here are some ways that we can make it easier for the next group of people to do this kind of thing. So there's a really cool example uh, that we share in the toolkit about the Mount Pleasant Solar Cooperative, which was the first one of these. Uh, in Washington, D.C., but what's really impressive is, is what the results that you get from these co-ops. So each, the average co-op that is run by Solar United Neighbors, which has chapters now in uh, seven or eight different states, uh, installs about 210 kilowatts of solar for 30 households, creates six jobs in the local economy, and about a million dollars in energy savings over the lifetime of those solar arrays. But it also organizes those 30 households and to be part of the political change that we need to make solar easier to do for other folks. Uh, so it's a really important way to get started. And there have already been solar, you might have heard about the name Solarize, uh, Solarize campaigns uh, in, in different cities in Montana, but they're a really important way to both give people a sense of something concrete they can do themselves for their own benefit even, and help them understand the, the connected nature of that investment. So the second one is, is focused on utilities. Um, I think this one is particularly helpful when you think about uh, rural electric cooperatives, but it applies really across the board, is how do we make it easier for people who can't afford to do energy improvements to do energy improvements? And the idea here is essentially, if the utility wants a new resource, if they say, hey, we need more energy to be able to sell because we have low growth, for example, or we need more capacity, and they want to build a new power plant, they'll go to a utility commission, they'll say, we're going to build this 500 megawatt gas plant, excuse me, and, um, and we're going to recover the cost of that billion dollar investment um, on everybody's bills. So everybody's going to pay a few bucks more over the you know, 10 years 
business so that they finance it. Uh, and they're going to have more energy then available. Well, energy efficiency, for anybody who works in the conservation field, is the cheapest way to get new resources. Uh, but the problem is that um, when we want to finance energy efficiency, strangely enough, we make people do it privately. So if I want to do something on my property, like put in an energy efficient refrigerator or do insulation or whatnot, I have to go out and borrow the money to do that on my own credit. And, and so it's much more difficult. Lots of people don't want to take out loans. Half of America has subprime credit, and they're not able to take out loans. Inclusive energy financing, also known as pay-as-you-save, just simply sub substitutes and says, why shouldn't the utility pay for that? If the utility is willing to pay for a power plant, why won't they pay for uh, 10,000 upgrades on customer properties that achieve the same goal at a lower cost? Plus, all of those folks save money, and all that money recirculates in the local economy. Um, there's a story here um, of Wachita Electric Cooperative, uh, based out in Arkansas. Um, when they adopted this program, they saw a tripling of interest and, and uh, uh, adoption of energy efficiency improvements uh, in a six-month period. Uh, over the previous six-month period, uh, they serve a predominantly poor area of our, rural Arkansas, and folks there are able to finally do energy improvements to their property to save money on their bills. And the utility itself is saving money because it doesn't have to go out and build new power plants uh, or to buy more uh, power from the wholesale market. So it, it can be a win-win. Um, we haven't seen a lot of interest yet from co-ops in Minnesota where I've been trying to work on this or in other parts of the country, so I'm very interested to see this possibly being adopted in other places. We also haven't seen any investor-owned utilities do it, but I'll tell a story in a minute about how we're working on that. But it has been approved in a number of different places, so the state and green have state policies in place for this and where those yellow pins are are particular utilities that are 